Good morning and uh, welcome to Coach's Corner number four now. Uh, I'm here with uh, Paul Moffat, the uh, owner of philosophy.cc and uh, coach to the Maryland Bike Club. And I am Alex Spraggs, the race director of the Maryland Bike Club. And we're here to discuss some more questions that came from Maryland members this week about uh, training and, and riding in, uh, in, in, the, in this season. So one of the things that we didn't quite finish off what we were discussing last week with our nutrition uh, section in that we discussed what to eat before and during a ride, but we didn't get to what we were, what we should eat after a ride. So uh, let's finish off that conversation and discuss what, how to properly fuel yourself after a ride to ensure good recovery. And uh, we'll go from there. So yeah, Paul, uh, well, first of all, how are you doing? And then let's get into the question. I'm doing great. Thanks, Alex. Been a good week. So lots of time on the bike as usual. So yeah. Doing good. Ready to talk some more bikes. Um, yeah, so for post-ride nutrition, um, again, we always want to think timing and then the um, breakdown of the food, how much protein, how much carbohydrates, etc., etc. So in terms of the timing, we we know that there's an ideal window where you get a kind of a bump in your results if you can eat within approximately the first hour of your exercise there is some research to say that the first 30 or 40 minutes is better the first 60 generally speaking if you're going to eat within 60 minutes of finishing your ride you uh, capitalize on where your body is at in terms of its metabolic process so it's much easier for your body to turn um, catabolic processes into anabolic processes. In other words, breaking down into building up processes if you hit it in the first hour window. Now, having said that, if you don't get that first hour in, don't think that it's all over. <laughs> the most important thing to do is replace all those calories, right? Um, even if your goal isn't weight loss, you want to start teaching your body how to turn carbohydrates into muscle glycogen and not into adipose fat, right? So eating after a ride is just plain and simply a smart thing to do because it'll just improve your results, right? The first hour, we know we're going to have a little bit better benefits from doing that. So that's always a good thing to do. And post-ride, we want to focus a little more on proteins than carbohydrates, right? Carbohydrates are still going to be very important at this point because we want to refill muscle glycogen and exposing your body to a decent amount to it will hopefully uh, supersede the amount of muscle glycogen it usually stores. Um, now, in terms of like exactly how much, obviously it's going to be relative to the rider. A bigger rider is going to need more protein, more carbohydrates, et cetera, et cetera. A smaller rider, maybe a little bit less. Generally speaking, you for, for uh, in terms of protein demands, without getting too complicated, you need just more than about eight grams of protein to start a proper anabolic process. So, you know, that's, that's pretty easy for most people to get. It could be you start with a protein shake and then you have um, uh, a pre-prepared rice dish or something like that, or it's just a big meal. So for myself, I usually batch cook my meals. So whatever I made for dinner the night before usually has a nice lean protein in it. So it might be, um, uh, 
a grilled chicken or something like that and then some wild rice and some mixed vegetables I'll have that ready to go for the next day so when I finish my ride I can just heat that up and it's ready to go so then I know I'm getting a good source of lean protein in there and uh, I've got good sources of uh, carbohydrates in there including complex carbohydrates from the um, from vegetables but you don't have to overcomplicate it right so good protein decent amount good carbohydrates decent amount so you just need a little bit more protein than you have maybe for the pre-ride meal um, carbohydrates are probably going to be about the same so yeah just keep that one simple um, and and so so what do you think about hitting up a red truck for a burger and a beer right after your long ride <laughs> okay uh, that's a good question um, so I'll play I'll, I'll play both sides of the coin here um, because your metabolism is raised, if you're going to have uh, a cheap meal or a cheeky meal that you know is probably not that healthy, it's probably the best time in the day to have it, right? Because your metabolism is high, your body, body will source through that food and extract what it can use, right? And it will probably use up more of the um, carbohydrates from the bun, as muscle glycogen, things like that, and process the, the, the meat differently. Uh, whereas if you had it later on when your feet are up on the couch and your ride was six hours ago, you're more likely to store that up as adipose tissue. So yeah, if you're gonna have a, a cheeky meal, it's probably better to do it to uh, just after your ride in spite of the fact that it's kind of counterintuitive, right? Most people I find try to eat really healthy after a ride and the rest of the day is just crap food. If you switch that around, again, playing devil's advocate here, um, you probably have better results from that. So from personal experience, uh, I'm a big fan of sweet things, <laughs> like brownies and cookies and things like that. So post-ride, that's my treat. That's my reward for going on a big ride. I'll have a brownie and a coffee, but I also complement that with a good meal. So I kind of find a nice... Uh, balance point right between the two where i'm having something that's a, a real treat but i also do something that i know is is going to help me in the long run now alcohol or beer and this is the trouble for stopping uh right after the ride uh alcohol is a big inflammatory really really big um and it's probably for most people the biggest reason why you're um not seeing your your goals is a little bit too much alcohol intake. And if you're doing that right after a ride, you can really stifle your progress. So in terms of alcohol consumption, I tend personally to wait as late as I can to have that. So if I'm having a midday ride, I won't have a drink till much later in the day. So that one hour window is probably where the one time where you don't wanna have your uh, alcohol consumption that's just some guidelines that I use. Having said that, you know, like a lot of people, that's why they ride, socialize with their friends. But maybe you grab a light beer instead of um, the uh, 6% craft beer that, that you're at your local brewery, right? So maybe a Rattler or something like that instead. In fact, in Europe, ironically, they do a lot of isotonic beers. Um, so they're basically 0% zero, zero alcohol or 1%. 
but it's pretty popular after a race to to have an isotonic beer and it's actually quite hydrating because it's isotonic which is um, it's kind of like what you have when you put a noon or a scratch labs thing in your drink mix it's uh, the same concentration as your uh, blood fluid levels so your body will absorb that really quickly so if you really just like taste the beer maybe that's your uh, hack <laughs> i like it i like it that's a good hack um so okay so great thank you so much i mean that's that's really helpful i know that a lot of us are concerned about you know what what we should be doing after a ride and how we should be fueling and and, and doing what's best to make sure that we recover for the next ride and so that we can get out there and, and do our best yeah next day um another kind of in the in terms of riders who are newer to cycling and are just getting into these longer rides you know these weekend rides that we're posting where we're going out to white white cliff or out to deep cove or around richmond and you're on the bike for three or four hours um how should we be pacing those rides so you know i'm going out to white cliff i'm going around stanley park and i hit the prospect point hill climb do i smash it up that climb or or how do i how should i be thinking about pacing throughout the ride Right. So I like to think of um, my energy for the day as like a, a bucket, right? A bucket full of energy. Um, and if you think about the term that we've been throwing around a lot lately is FTP or like this kind of threshold level, right? So where you're climbing is at, at a pretty decent capacity. So efforts that are at FTP or above FTP take a big scoop out of the bucket, maybe a little bit more than is needed, right? So it leaves your bucket a little bit um, depleted afterwards. Um, now, on big steep climbs, there's not a whole lot you can do about that sometimes. You're maybe in your last gear and it's, it's hard to, to pace it because just keeping going requires you to go to FTP or above, right? But where you can, um, I would try to buffer that. So if there's no need to crush prospect point and there's still three hours of riding left, I would sit underneath my FTP. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily going that slowly, uh, but just a little lower. So maybe 80, 90% of your FTP. And that's more like skimming the top of your bucket rather than taking a big scoop out of it, right? Um, you should always think about like how you want to feel at the end of your ride. Even when you get fitter, um, it doesn't mean that you can smash every single hill climb, right? So you got to think, if I want to feel good at the end of the ride and maybe finish a little bit faster towards the end, I've got to be a little bit conservative at the start to make sure that I've got enough energy in my bucket to, to get to that point. Um, so I use like a, a sag climbing rule. So I go softer up the climbs, but it doesn't mean you necessarily slower, especially if you're using the descent to build up speed. So what I find most novice riders do is they expend all their energy up a hill and they coast down the other side and then they lose all their momentum when they're on the flats. So between the downhill and the flat, they've lost a lot of the time that they've gained by smashing the hill. Whereas you dial it back a little bit and you just sit under a threshold, when you get to the top of the climb, you don't feel too gas. So you don't necessarily need all that recovery. You don't need to coast on the other side. You can spin up and use the descent to your advantage. And when you hit the bottom of the hill, because you have more momentum, because you haven't been coasting, you're faster on the flats too. So you made up any difference that you would have normally had um, if you were just smashing the one side and coasting the other. So it's almost the same amount of time, but the, 
big benefit between that and the, and the other way is that it's much less fatigue. So you can do that repeatedly throughout the ride. So that, that's, that's one of the um, techniques that I use um, to, to do my long riding. Uh, and if you're, if you're doing it well, you'll probably find in the third or fourth hour that you feel almost as good as your first or second hour. That's usually the, the ultimate key to knowing that your, your pacing strategy is working really well. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and one thing that I find is I, I particularly, I know that I did this a lot when I first started riding, is that, you know, I would really hit the gas going up a hill. Yeah. And, and then I would, I would run out of steam right as you get to the crest, and that's when you're like, oh, I can just, I can just like light up. And yeah. then you lose all your speed on that, like that very slight gradient right at the crest of the hill. Yeah. And then so you start coming down the other side, and you're barely even moving. Whereas, you know, that, that crest of the hill and particularly, you know, if, if, when you get more, uh, more advanced and you start racing, that crest of the hill is oftentimes the decider. It's like the critical moment is whether or not you have the power to power over the crest and build and, and keep any, you know, replace any momentum you lost up the hill and put it, build momentum going into the downhill. Yeah. That crest is like a really critical moment. And if you really gas it going up the hill, you know, your, your, your motivation to uh, continue to press hard over the crest will, will quickly uh, disappear. Yeah. I got a, I got a great anecdote about just that same thing. So I was out on a training ride one day out to Britannia beach and I bumped into an old teammate of mine and uh, he was a pretty advanced racer. And at the time I thought I was like, hot hot shit <laughs> but he he basically schooled me he used all of his experience to really put me in the hurt locker so coming back from britannia beach he's like all right we're gonna pace this one like uh, a race so we set our um our limits for climbing and um flat riding if if either of us was on the front now he had no trouble keeping up with me on the, on the climbs and coming over the top. We're pretty evenly matched in terms of like power output, but he used to do this one little thing that just destroyed me that day. And it's exactly what you're talking about. I realized that I was still riding like an amateur at that point. So just like you're talking about the crest of the hill, I would just get to the top and I start to slow down and I coast some of it. And then eventually I'd pedal through it. Right. So I was going just a little too hard and then requiring recovery as I crested. Whereas he would pace it just a little bit slower, not much, but just a little bit. But as he got to the crest, he would actually shift into the next gears because he knew he was going to need them on the downhill. And he would just put a couple uh, strong pedal strokes over the top. And because I was still using my strategy, he would put in about three to four bike lengths on me, just instantaneously. Boom. We get to the bottom of the hill and I'd have to pull that back. But by the time I had the bottom of the hill, that four bike lengths was now six or seven. So it was this big effort just to get back in his draft. Now you multiply that by how many of those little crests and hills are along the sea of sky. And I was basically trying to play catch up to him for a good like 30 or 40 minutes. And he's going at like 40, 45 kilometers an hour. So pulling that back is a big effort. I was cross-eyed by the time we got back to Vancouver and he looked fresh as a daisy. So I knew, and he calls it um, humping the bump or something to that effect, where you just like cruise over the crest with just a little bit of momentum, and then he takes every bit of that momentum down the downhill. 
he kind of drilled it into me that if you're coasting, you're slowing down and you don't necessarily need to be working hard to go down a hill, but if you can at least move your legs, you can recover at the same time as you're building up momentum. And that can be a really useful tool for uh, riders to learn as they're, as they're uh, coming up. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so this is, you know, I think this is relevant to, relevant to a lot of riders at the Maryland Club, those who are more uh, time pressed and, and don't have 10, you know, 10, 12 hours a week to put on their bike or more. And so they're looking at, they have, you know, they have four hours a week. They have maybe one weekday ride, their Wednesday ride, you know, with the Mariloma Club, and one weekend ride, you know, three-hour ride out to wherever. Other than that, you know, their schedules, they have kids, they have jobs, whatever, it keeps them pretty time-restricted. If, if that is the type of schedule that you're looking at, you know, how – we emphasize a lot of, of kind of Z, zone one work where you do these long kind of uh, aerobic efforts to build heart and lungs more than legs. Um, but if you've only got four hours, you know, does it make sense to be spending a lot of time in, in zone one? Yeah, I mean, that's the, the theory makes a lot of sense. Um, however, you, you still get benefits from training in zone one, even if you have a small amount of time to use right and, and the best example I can give you is if you're too busy to get out for a proper ride or you're too tired or fatigued a zone one ride will still improve your fitness right it's still a ride um, there's evidence to show that even if you have um, a short amount of time to train during the week doing zone one, one rides are pretty beneficial however um, again it's, it's always uh, dependent on the rider you have to really take someone's goals into account and how quick their events are coming up. So if you had 20 weeks away from your goal event, I would probably phase my training out. So I do maybe like six weeks of just zone one work where you're just picking out low hanging fruit, especially on the weekend. So let's say you go for that three hour ride, right? I would start off the first few rides just doing some flat riding and just conditioning my body to a few things that I expect to see on my event. So number one, the one thing that a lot of riders uh, do when they first start their training and they do their long rides, they take lots of breaks. They stop for water, they're taking selfies, they're uh, coasting a lot, they're just not paying attention, right? They're just, they're just used to that type of riding. But on event day, the gun goes and you ride from A to B, and it's probably the first time those riders have tried not to take a break. And that in and of itself, irrespective of uh, fitness, can be the undoing of many riders. Because if you've conditioned your body to take a break every 30, 40 minutes to take a photo or take a pee break or something like that, and then you try to go beyond that in a race, that can be your undoing, right? Same with um, just plain old pedaling. So have you ever done a three hour ride and tried to pedal the whole time, right? With the exception of like a steep downhill or a tight corner or an intersection. But without those parameters, can you just pedal your bike that whole time? Can you do Iona and back pedaling, no stopping? Can you do river road back and forth pedaling, no stopping? And maybe do laps to that, right? If you can accumulate that in three or four hour time and you haven't unclipped once, you've pedaled the whole time, you'll find that even if you do that really easily, it can be exceptionally fatiguing because you're just not used to moving your legs nonstop for three or four hours. 
it's a conditioning component, not necessarily like a pure aerobic fitness component. And that's something, it's a low hanging fruit. So if you can take away those uh, unnecessary breaks, you can get your body used to moving its feet uh, for three or four hours. And then there's also a strength component. So when you're on the bike for four hours, you need a certain amount of upper body strength and core strength to hold you in that position. Plus your butt's just got to get used to being in the seat for that long. So that's where I start my training off and just get used to that. So even if it's three weeks of doing those long rides outside at zone one and just picking off the low hanging fruit, pedal conditioning, uh, staying nice and, uh, uh, good posture, essentially like good, good core activation and not taking unnecessary breaks that can be very, very valuable for your training carrying forward. Cause once you start to do higher intensity stuff, it's kind of too late to start working on that. And then there's also nutrition timing as well. So most riders have a hard time eating and drinking while they ride. And if they go straight to high intensity, it's too much of a distraction. So I'll use those easy rides just to build the habit of like drinking every 10 minutes, eating every 20, just like we talked about last week and trying to hit all my nutrition targets. So basically trying to eat everything that I bring with me and drink everything that I bring with me. And if you turn that into a habit early on, then you can move into the higher training phase, the higher intensity training phase, sorry. Um, but yeah, so I guess there's value to both. Um, if you're closer to your event and it's quite a demanding event, you don't have much time to train for it, then yes, it might be more, um, valuable to you to train at a, at a higher intensity, especially that one hour weekday uh, ride to go out and do some higher intensity stuff at threshold or just above threshold. But then on the weekend, maybe you make a bit of a compromise. So if you're going for a three hour ride, maybe you spend an hour and a half of it at that zone one, practicing your low hanging fruit components, and then add in some intervals towards the end. Right. So you're, you're basically knocking both off. And I would definitely do the lower intensity stuff before the intervals. It tends to have a better effect rather than afterwards. Basically, when your anaerobic or your high intensity engine turns on and it really switches on, everything after that, it basically shuts down your aerobic engine afterwards. So the value to your two systems starts to diminish if you're doing uh, extra volume after doing intervals. Hopefully that answers your question a little bit. Yeah, no, I think that that's great advice. Um, and, and I found personally that uh, zone work, I, I found zone one work, I found really, uh, really helpful on the bike. Even, you know, I started doing zone one work a lot in October and November. And I found that surprisingly, and you wouldn't think that this would happen, but it really, really helped my track cycling, which is not in, like in, in terms of, it isn't still an endurance sport, but in terms of the cycling racing world, track cycling is the most compressed, the shortest kind of events. But I, I immediately started feeling real uh, benefits to my track cycling and just being able to <clears throat> repeat hard efforts and recover in the medium and lower short, medium and lower efforts periods during a race. Um, it's, uh, I, I, uh, yeah, I think adding zone one work was a component I wasn't really working on before then. And I was feeling pretty immediate benefits. So, yeah. Zone one work helps, like you are saying, it, it helps your body to recover faster after big efforts. Cause you're basically lifting the amount of effort you can put out as you're recovering. 
So there's a lot of value to doing that. So, you know, if you're doing a Whistler Fondo, after you do Taylor Way, after you do Britannia Beach, after you do Furry Creek, there's a lot of flat riding to do. Um, and if you're trying to keep up with a group that's maybe going faster than your aerobic capacity is able to, you're not recovering between those climbs. You're digging into the same resources that you need for your FTP, which is like you, what you were mentioning about track. So if you can lift that aerobic capacity, when you're not doing hard efforts, you can still be going fast and recovering quite well. So there's definitely some value to um, developing that engine, especially in the off season when, you know, we have a bit more time, most of us, we don't have all the summer schedule. Um, and we go back to indoor riding. Indoor riding has a, a very, very high yield for zone one. And I guess there's something we also need to chat about is, is what is zone one? Because everybody has a different understanding of it. Right. So the zone one that uh, you and I typically talk about is literally um, a lab test where we put you through a ramp protocol. And at the same time as we're increasing the intensity every three minutes or so, um, you're, you either have an oxygen saturation machine on your muscles measuring when the oxygen uh, absorption rate rapidly changes or you get a blood lactate test or both. And the blood lactate test will measure when your body starts to accumulate lactate. So your body's always making lactate, but it's often able to buffer it. So we know when you're working aerobically, your body is buffering it at the same rate as it's producing it. But when you start to bring your effort up above a certain point, your body can no longer buffer it. So that's when fatigue is going to start setting in, right? So we use a heart rate uh, monitor to do that one. And that establishes like your physiological signature. So for me, it's 145 beats per minute. That number will never really change. In fact, it'll probably get lower as I, as I age, but the power that I produce at that number will change with my training. So as long as I keep my effort under 145, I'm always in my zone one, right? It's unlike um, doing say an FTP test, where your zone one is a prediction of that higher end number. So it's not super accurate. So you can make some, some fairly decent predictions of what it is, but there is always a degree of um, individual difference. Not everyone's going to have access to lab to do that. If you can, it's a valuable investment because unlike an FTP test, which you need to do like every six to 12 weeks to get uh, to, to keep seeing how it's improving, your zone one result is probably going to last you a season or two or three. Like that, that heart rate number is not going to change very much. So it's, it's a definitely a good investment to make. Um, if you don't have that, you can make some general guidelines. I usually use a number of approximately 135 beats per minute and get most of my riders who haven't done it, uh, a lactate um, zone one test to just use that as their starting point. And then see how it feels. If you go for a zone one ride and you're sitting between 130, 135 beats per minute and it felt really intense in the second hour, well, your zone one is probably a lot lower than that. So you probably scale down. And, and in terms of zone one, you can always hedge down. Unlike FTP where you're always trying to push up to or above that number to change it, zone one's unique. You always want to stay underneath it to change it. It's very, it's very unusual. It's such a weird thing. Um, anyway, well, let's leave it there before it gets too confusing. I'm sure we're going to open up a whole new line of questioning there. Um, yeah.
Oh, that's, that's, that's super helpful. Yeah. I, um, my, my aerobic capacity heart rate number is 135 and yeah, it's really interesting. It's a, it's an interesting feeling. It's like, uh, you know, it's, it doesn't seem that hard, but you can go surprisingly fast on, on flats, um, staying in that number. In fact, I think that's, you know, that's one of the things that you kind of learn you know, when you, when you ride a lot and this kind of goes back to our pacing thing is that, um, you know, when I first started riding, it was just my heart rate was going up and down and up and down and up and down. Yeah. But if you keep it steady and you keep out like a steady power, even if it's not a lot, you'll find that you cover a lot of ground, particularly, you know, the Richmond loop, the Richmond loop I can do in zone one and I can do a hundred kilometers and, uh, I think it's a little under four hours so that's like you know 26 kilometers an hour 25 kilometers an hour something yeah, like that. that's by yourself right so yeah. if you had a couple guys there that's 26 would become 30 35 kilometers an hour at a at a pseudo recovery uh pace where you're where you're hot you could keep going you, yeah. i'm sure you've experienced that on a zone one ride you get to the end you're like I could knock out another two hours and add another 50, 60 K to this ride if I wanted to. And that's the indication that your zone one training is working. So um, the, the trouble to zone one is it takes time to develop, right? And we're talking about, if we compare that to FTP, FTP is kind of like the power that you put out for 40 to 60 minutes, okay? So after you've done your FTP test, you go out to Seymour, and you test out that number and see how long you can hold it for. You're probably going to have a hard time holding it all the way to the end. So it's only like 40 to 60 minutes worth of power. Aerobic capacity is like three to five hours worth of power. So where do you want to invest your time? Do you want to add an extra 10 watts to 60 minutes of power? Or do you want to add an extra 10 watts to three to five hours of, of riding time? Because on your Fondos, 10 watts to th across three to five hours is going to make, you know, 10, 20 minutes worth of difference to some riders. Whereas an extra 10 watts in your FTP might only be a minute or two on your best Cypress time. So, yeah, the downside is it takes a, a, quite a while for it to develop. Zone one training requires, instead of intensity, volume to really um, start working well and to start working quickly but it's going to take eight to 12 weeks before you see significant changes and that's if you have the time to train it's on one so that's where i guess coming back to our first point the question that you have if you're getting close to event time maybe you just focus on the high intensity scale if you have a long time take some time to develop your zone one engine so yeah so the, the last question for today, and you know, I'd also, I like, I think this is also a question to put back to them, to the members for feedback, see what their thoughts are. But the last question is what kind of uh, goals can we set? You know, now that all the races are canceled and, and it looks like the RBC Grand Fondo is canceled. Um, so we don't have those specific goals to keep in our mind to kind of schedule our training around and, and be motivated for um, so what kind of goals can we think about? And then I'll put this to the Maryloma members to kind of provide us with the goals that you think we should set up and then we can work as a club to kind of, uh, work towards them. But Paul, in, in your mind, what, what kind of things can we be looking at 
for goals this season. So this is this is a time where Strava really shows his colors, <laughs> because just because your events are gone um, doesn't mean there's no incentive to train, right? This is where you can kind of like fuel your ego a little bit and 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 start with maybe some simple goals. Like, what are your favorite segments on Strava? When you go for a ride and you're out to Horseshoe Bay there's probably going to be a couple segments where you always go back to and you look at how you stack up against your buddy, right? So maybe you set that up as a goal for yourself and be like, okay, well, there's the climb out of the marina. I know that I can do it in about four minutes, 50, and so-and-so can do it at 440. So my goal is to try and knock them off the ladder. Set that goal for about four weeks from, um, from today and use a structured training plan to to try and do similar sorts of efforts um, and develop that engine and then go back and test it and have some fun right so using kind of strava to incentize your training a little bit and to move up the, the strava ladder boards the other thing is to start doing your bucket list rides right so maybe there's a ride that you've always wanted to do maybe it's to give some grind fondo or you've always wanted to do the, the tour de victoria Personally, I'm a big fan of the Tour de Victoria loop solo. As a race, um, it's a great race, but I've always found it just a little nerve-wracking with lots of people. But as an individual ride, it's a big day. It's very challenging, uh, but it's an amazing course. So you can download that onto your computer, maybe take three or four of your friends, uh, and it gives you something to still work towards. So you're basically doing a virtual event, right? So you're still doing the, the, the event that you intended to do. You're just doing it on your own terms. It'll still require training to do. It's 160 kilometers. It's good climbing. You have to go into it fit enough to do the whole day and set yourself some small goals on the day as well. Maybe you're only going to take two or three breaks for water and for pee break, et cetera. And you're creating kind of a race environment for yourself. Um, other things you can do is, is sign up to some of the Zwift series. So Escape Velocity is running Saturday morning uh, races and Wednesday evening, um, uh, Tuesday night, <laughs> ironically, Wednesday nights is the Tuesday night crits that they used to have. So they're having an online series for that. Um, yeah, ultimately, it's just finding things that motivate you. Um, for a lot of my riders, it's as simple as trying to get their best Cypress time, right? So or Seymour or something like that. So just take the next few uh, weeks to kind of come up with a bucket list of things that are valuable to you as a rider, things that, you know, stoke your ego that you're, you know, you're stoked to tell people about, like if you've done a triple crown, that's, uh, that's a huge milestone too. And a lot of riders um, probably haven't tackled that one before. So yeah, just think about things that really motivate you and, and use those as, um, carrots to 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 drag you along for your training absolutely i think that's a, those, are, those are some great tips and yeah if oh, let, let's ask you what, what are some of yours because if you share some of yours that'll probably inspire other people to uh putting you on the spot here alex oh boy yeah well I, actually the triple crown is one that i've never done um i'd really like to do that uh and i've also always kind of had in mind a, a triple crown that not really many people do but the um uh, Seymour grouse up the gravel road up to actual grouse mountain, up, right, up right. Highway, like the full 
a full triple crown as opposed to the normal triple tri triple crown is just up to the Grouse Mountain parking lot. Yeah, that's legit. But doing the doing the real one up yeah. the gravel road on a gravel bike, so doing all three uh, all three mountains on a gravel bike, I think that would be a lot of fun. So that's, that's there you go right away. There's there's your you know if you were training for that event exclusively, we'll probably have to teach you how to climb under your threshold power a little bit more and expand the duration that you could climb in. So those sweet spot drills. Uh, so, so far, some of the workouts we've been sending you guys have been around FTP and probably go about 10% under that and grow the amount of time that you could do it at. So it could be like 15 minutes the first week for four intervals, then 20 minutes uh, two weeks later, 30, 35, until you can do blocks of 40 minutes at that power two to three times. And that would simulate two to three mountains right if you can do 40 minutes of climbing at an almost ftp number um that's basically what you're going to be doing seymour now on the day it's probably going to be a lot longer but at least you'll have that engine to fall back on and also teach you a good pacing strategy and how long you can hold that power for so use your training to simulate that if you can't hold uh 80 of your threshold for 40 minutes during a training ride probably not going to be able to do that for the triple crown so just having goals like that will lead your training right there so yeah so great so yeah i mean any members um when you're when you're listening to this think about what goals you might have and particularly any goals that might be shared amongst other mariloma members and we can uh, provide them to paul and he can help make sure that our the training schedule that he's providing to us uh can fit around those goals if we have a group mariloma goal say doing um uh doing the valley fond or the, the the which is a great one in the in the uh, valley doing the valley fondo by july 15th for instance um then we can help make sure that our training program is kind of geared around those types of goals yeah and then one one more note just about those uh training goals and things like that so the downside to striver is sometimes it can encourage the worst of people where you overtrain you get a little caught up with doing the monthly distance challenge and the monthly climbing challenge and you just start to add a lot of junk miles in there when you set out your goals try and set them about a month apart so that you can have four weeks of good value structured training leading up to that point so you're going to prepare for it and then you're going to do it prepare and do so right now i'm getting a lot of my athletes to pick a one goal or one event simulation per month so one for june one for july one for august and maybe a finisher in september before the season really winds down and so each month is something special and then that will help incentivize us to do a block of training for each one so yeah just a nice measured approach great well thank you so much paul and uh i look forward to chatting with you more next week at the next coach's corner and you, thanks for having me, Alex. Talk to you soon. Take care.